Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to a special subscriber-only bonus episode of Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording this portion of the podcast from my apartment, Le Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, this bonus episode makes up for the missing politics uh, from one of the earlier episodes in the week. We had so much criminal justice fuckery that I didn't have time to talk about much of anything else. And as weird as it is, some of you actually do tune in for my political views in addition to the criminal justice shenanigans. Uh, so we have brought back my two very good friends from undergrad, Dave Fox and James Hankins, to talk about some of the political news that happened last week. Uh, so this intro portion and the outro portion uh, have both been recorded at my apartment. The middle chunk of it was recorded at my office, the law offices of T. Greg Doucette, the Durham weed lawyer. Uh, and then Mike, the sound guy, mixed things up in the studio to make it sound better than it sounded for the patrons who got kind of like the uncut version right when it came out. Now, I have to mention this because this comes up every time we do a bonus podcast. When I say a subscriber-only bonus episode, that doesn't mean only subscribers get it. What it means is I don't tell anybody about it. So most of the time, the only people who see this podcast are people who are already subscribed uh, or people who happen to follow me on Twitter and see me tweeting about it incessantly. For the bonus pods, I just don't tweet about it. If you would like to tweet about it, great. I would love to see folks talk about how much they love or hate this particular podcast. Uh, but basically, I don't mention it because it gives me a chance to see uh, who either is already subscribed, which means you get it when it first comes out, or you've listened to the prior episode where I announced that this bonus episode was forthcoming. So just know now that I'm not going to mention this on Twitter. I'm not going to mention it on Facebook. Uh, I may retweet some of you if you decide to mention it yourselves, but this is going to be a uh, silent rollout, we would call it. So without further ado, we've got a conversation with Dave and James about Kanye, Nazis, teacher strikes, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I hope you enjoy it. Here you go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with us through the break. Once again, I am joined by my good friends from college out of the wintry climate of Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have our educational correspondent, Harvard attendee, James Edward Oliver Hankins II. The sequel is better than the original. James, how are you? I'm good, man. Good. It's final season. I'm sure Dave's going to relate that too. So I'm in this whirlwind mindset of right now that, you know, uh, up is down, left is right, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria, you know, so... uh I'm really struggling with that. But other than that, I'm fantastic. <laughs> now, you ain't been naked in intersections getting beat down by the police recently, have you? Because I know Harvard was in our story not too long ago. Man, that situation was nuts. Uh, I really do appreciate, just to briefly touch on that for one second, I really do appreciate the swift response of some of my colleagues on campus. Uh, some of the uh, professors at the law school uh, jumped on that case immediately and were going to do it, handle it pro bono. Um but uh, there's 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 definitely actions being taken place to address the Harvard police from today uh, moving forward. So. Uh, so, yeah, that was a that was quite a wild situation, brother. That's what's up. And also joining us from the great state of North Carolina, Sanford, Lee County, the great black hope of the Lee County GOP. We have David Burton Fox. Dave, how are you, brother? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To hell with J.C. Watts, baby. I am the real 
deal, black Republican, except no substitutes, baby. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to Booker T. Washington. Lord have mercy. All right, so let, let's go ahead and dive into it, and I'm going to dive into the one thing that everyone else wants folks to comment on, and that's the shit going down with Kanye. So to give the listeners some background, Kanye had been on a Twitter hiatus for like two years, and there's this chick named Candace Owens who works with Turning Points USA. They're this absolutely ridiculous, nominally conservative outfit. They're basically they're the ones that are spending money to buy student government elections and so on. And Candace used to be a leftist. She tried a Kickstarter where she was going to finance a website to dox Nazis and that sort of thing. And when that didn't make her enough money, she became like this rabid Republican. So she works for Turning Points USA. And out of this two-year hiatus from Yeezy, he tweets out, I like the way Candace Owens thinks. And that starts a little bit of a snowball on Twitter. Then within the next you know, 24 hours, the dude's on a tweet storm talking about how much he loves Donald Trump. He's wearing a, a, a MAGA hat and a selfie, got it signed by the president. Uh, Chance the Rapper chimed in, said black people don't have to be Democrats. There was a back and forth between Kanye and John Legend. Just the other day, he's talking to TMZ, talking about black people being slaves for 400 years was a choice. And of course, this has caused widespread uproar among Republicans who hated black people and now suddenly think they're amazing. Democrats who love black people but think Kanye's lost his mind. So I'm going to ask both of y'all, is this is this mental illness? Is this Kanye being Kanye trying to sell records? Does he actually believe this shit or what? I'll yield to James first. I think it's tough to characterize it as mental illness because there's so much that we don't know. And I, I think we have to sometimes hesitate. I think we should hesitate at times to immediately judge something as a mental illness or, or a sign of mental illness. Uh, there are telltale signs, obviously, of, of certain uh, disorders, but I don't think we can necessarily do that with, with somebody who might have, you know, uh, narcissistic disorder like Kanye. Uh, I think the thing that most frustrated me more than anything, like I, the slavery comments, that's just ridiculous. It, it's, that, it's old hat now. It, it's gotten to a point where where you hear people say things like that, and especially celebrities or people in positions of power or privilege, and you just you almost have to laugh at it. It's almost become a parody of itself when people say things of that nature. But I think the thing that disturbed me the most is that he stigmatized people who go to professionals to get mental health by by claiming that you know he didn't need that help or that the 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 people or the person he was seeing wasn't doing what he needed them to do or they were. They were siphoning his energy or whatever language he, he used in, in, in that sense. He's got that dragon energy. Dragon energy. He's got that dragon energy. Dragon energy, tiger blood coming to a store near you uh, very soon. But I think that he stigmatized folks who need to see somebody in order to get some sort of help when it comes to a, a, a mental illness or a mental disorder or, or depression or anything of that nature. And, and I, I think that's, the mo- that's one of the most unfortunate parts about it. Not that that's going to necessarily influence anybody to think in that way. Not that's going to necessarily influence anybody to to say, I can't go see a psychologist because Kanye doesn't go see a psychologist. There might be people like that that exist, but they got more problems than just, just, just that. I think it's unfortunate that we're still at an era in 2018 that uh, seeing a psychologist or going to see somebody who can uh, help you with your, with your, with yourself, help you with your, your any mental illness or issues that you're going through it's still stigmatized and, and seen as something that's kind of outside of the box. So uh, that's really my 
point when it comes to Kanye. I can care less about the race stuff. Again, it's it's a parody of itself at this point. It's satirical. It's uh it's laughable. But uh this is the same guy who said George Bush doesn't care about black people. So maybe Kanye's uh completely switched mind that mindset up as of late. Think he's trying to sell some easy slides or what? I think he I mean I think his I think marketing wise, I mean like, like it's brilliant in that sense because he's in the. He would have been in the news anyway because Kanye is a, is a firebrand. He's somebody who's going to garner a lot of attention. That's that's absolutely the case. But I think this allows him to become the headline of the news. This allows him to become somebody who uh, those who are worship at the the altar of MAGA are are going to come around and and maybe pick up you know uh, some Yeezys or maybe you know listen to. Uh, Listen, they better not listen to like the college dropout or anything like that. They'll they'll find a completely different person. But uh, maybe they'll <laughs> they'll listen to anything that he drops uh, as of late. So I, I think it's a brilliant marketing strategy um, from that perspective. And he's got everybody's attention. Like it's not as if people are going to boycott his music. Now I just read recently that a radio station in Detroit is refusing to play Kanye's music, which is which is patently ridiculous. Comparing uh, c- considering how many artists um, radio stations play that have done things much more egregious Kale. are they still play, right are they still playing R. <laughs> Kelly like like AJ nothing but a number is that still coming on from Aaliyah like are we hearing that on the radio station regular? you know so like well shit Fabulous is on regular rotation he done knocked his baby mama's teeth out absolutely absolutely so I, I think right. that Big, Big Pump pistol whipped his, his his baby mama right 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 and so and so at this point I think that we moralize too much and I think this is an overreaction to Kanye but I, I, at the end of the day he's still going to have the same listeners he's always had Plus, he's picked up a few people that might not have ever been interested in his music that maybe check him out and actually spend some money on on what he's uh, what he's producing. So to me, it's a brilliant marketing strategy is ridiculous and frustrating and satirical as it as it seems. Dave, what do you think? You could have yourself a uh, a fellow black member of the Republican Party at this rate. He could be our nominee for president in 2020. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of bullshit. Um yeah, I gotta. There's so much here to unpack. Number one, let me take it. First of all, I think mental illness has nothing to do with this. I think I'd like to go with Occam's razor. This is just Kanye being an idiot, and why he's being an idiot, I really don't know. And it honestly doesn't even matter to me. I think you. First of all, you got to understand what Kanye means to a certain group of people, especially uh, black folks that are in their, I'd say, from about 34 to 27, especially. When college dropout dropped back in, you know, what, 2006, 2007, he was the first real intellectual millennial rapper. Uh, if you were a hip hop stand, guys that are me and James's age uh, uh, around there, we were really too young to fully appreciate the Native Tongues movement. So that's like, um, that's guys like, uh, not Naughty by Nature, A Tribe Called Quest, uh, brand newbie in even latifah and 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 de la soul that group of people for us he was that guy he was talking about a whole lot of millennial stuff i mean at that at that point in time he was talking about you know college debt he was talking about um the whole buppy culture and if you don't know what buppy is it's black yuppies it's the, the the generation of people that had been born and raised in a fully integrated society and what blackness meant to us so if you look at college dropout, late late registration, and graduation, those three albums back to back really captured James and I's age group as as African as college educated African Americans 
those three albums captured our experience probably more than any other album. It's, it's kind of like being a, a, a white high school kid in the 90s listening to 10 or, or, or Nevermind. So to hear that and for that group of people to hear this guy say so much stupid shit, it's really a betrayal to a, a lot of ours, a lot of our formative years. Because we remember listening to to school spirit and Jesus walks and like, gosh, finally, finally, we get to have our Q-tip. And so for him to say these types of things is bad. As far as, you know, the, the types of things that he has said, and, and number one, I, I just don't see it as conservative. I just see it as completely stupid. I mean, this, this is not anything that Kemp would have said. This is not anything that Eisenhower would have said. This is nothing that J.C. Watts would have said. I mean, hold on, hold on. Let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. The issue isn't isn't about victimization. We can have a bootstraps argument. What we cannot have is sitting here saying that a group of people chose to be enslaved. That completely that completely dismisses a, a, a ton of American history from Bacon's Rebellion, which uh, there was a lot of black people that participated in, to Gabriel Prosser, to John Horse, who joined with the Seminole Indians and fought in the Seminole Wars, uh, to Denmark VC, to Nat Turner, even to Toussaint L. Overture and other. And we just got a history from the early the earliest times that we've been here since before the Articles of Confederation all the way up until uh, the late 1800s with with. Uh, with John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry, we got a ton of insurrections. So his point that people didn't fight back is bullshit. What you have is a minority group that is being is being subjected. And even if you rise up, you're a minority. So you have to deal with the, the consequences. This is akin to saying that the uh, untouchables who are at the bottom of the Indian caste system, which has existed far longer than black people have been here in America, that, that that they they chose to be at the bottom of the caste system. No, the the Aborigines did, are, are not choosing to be marginalized by Australian society. I don't see anything about that that is conservative. I see it as being fundamentally stupid. Now, uh, and it's not even about. And, and another thing that we need to think about is the fact that this is not about black people are not voting are not voting with the Republican Party because somehow. They're just these rabid liberals. I mean, if you talk to blue collar guys in places like Charleston, Memphis, guys get up at work every day, black middle class people in PG County, uh, you know, the, the, the really uh, religious people that are AME Zion or uh, missionary Baptist, they have far more in common with a lot of uh, mainline Protestant liberals or even Pentecostal evangelicals than they would some atheist uh, post-feminist professor living in Seattle. The issue, <laughs> the issue is they don't, they don't feel as though the party has offered them really good candidates and offered them a platform. I mean, black people voted Republican for a hundred years. Professor Brad Smith at Loyola Marymount, who happens to be another brother, uh, he's talked about this at length. This is about having good candidates. So if you put odious people, even if that doesn't even represent the 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 majority of your party, if there is a sense that you have been cowards on the issue of race for, let's say, the past, I don't know, 30 years or so, then you're going to lose black votes. And so it's about recapturing conservatism and making it palatable for a group of people. 
uh, you know, to me, race has nothing to do with who's conservative or not. Uh, if you look in the 1980s, we had tons of Cuban and Vietnamese immigrants. The people like Marco Rubio's parents, like Viet Dinh's parents, they were they these people came over here from Vietnam, from Cuba, from from different places in the world. They were staunch Republicans. Many of them are still Republicans to this day. So it's about having a philosophy that addresses the needs of the people and takes their needs seriously. That is the issue. So so I don't see Kanye as being conservative. I, I see him as titillating a group of people who already had bigoted standpoints to begin with. And, and they just want, you know, a, a co-signer. There's a big difference between somebody like Tim Scott and a boot a bootlicking tap dancing Uncle Tom like Jesse Lee Peterson, who breathes fresh life into old stereotypes. He's just waiting on some pound cake or something or somebody to pat him on the head and, and tell him he's a good Negro. He is not a, a, a surefire black conservative with ideas that can help the community. People like J.C. Watts, people like Carter G. Woodson, people like Booker T. Washington, et cetera, at all. So that's how I feel about the issue. Well, let me ask you this. How about Killer Mike? Because he gave that uh, he gave that speech that was broadcast on NRA TV talking about his love for the Second Amendment and everything else. Does that make him a conservative or is he going to be on the other side of the fence? I don't, th- I don't necessarily know if he's a conservative. I think he's he might. Be, we got a lot of single issue voters in the country. So you can you can have people that agree with you on something like taxes and guns and they might not dis- they might disagree with you on, say, abortion, trade, uh, those type regulations. So I think part of the issue is somebody like Killer Mike, who is focused on community empowerment. There should be ways that we are able to work with him. Case in point uh, and shout out to Conan Morgan, who is. The Green Lantern of the of the Negro Justice League. That brother worked. <laughs> that brother. That brother worked on a mayoral campaign in Raleigh uh, uh, with Charles Francis. Charles Francis was a lawyer who was running against Nancy McFarland, who is the unaffiliated uh, Democrat current mayor. And uh, he, well, she actually she's not she's not a Democrat. She's unaffiliated. He was running as a Democrat, and he was able to get conservatives. He was able to get black people. He was able to get this this coalition of, of people focused around housing and jobs. So I think that there is an there is a way that we can reach out across the aisle as Republicans. And, and maybe not everybody's going to be a movement conservative. That's fine. Not, most people aren't going to be. But if you can if you can pick up suburban votes, if you can pick up votes of religious people. Small. There's no reason why a small business owning black person in the heart of South Carolina isn't. But the majority of those types of folks aren't voting Republican, other than the fact that the party has done a poor. Well, South Carolina is a poor example with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. But uh, most other states, this type of person would not be voting Republican. And because the party's done a poor job Uh and the onus is on young Republicans and and Republican intellectuals like Jonah Goldberg, like uh, Crystal, like others to make the party address the ideas of today. James, I'm going to bring it back to you. So my question to you is this. Take the inverse of what Dave just said. Is this something where the Democrats are risking kind of a long term loss of black votes by having people who have a following, not just Kanye, not just Killer Mike, but, you know, Chance the Rapper got into it as well. And his tweet was fairly simple. He just said black people don't have to be Democrats. 
Is that some that type of recognition something that's going to be a threat to the Democratic Party long term? Um, I think it's a threat to the Democratic Party. That doesn't mean it's a addition or an asset for the Republican Party per se. I definitely think that Black Democrats that have come up um, through our era, our especially our generation, have become more and more disillusioned with the party. I mean, Dave Fox is on this call, like this somebody, <laughs> <laughs> somebody who became disillusioned with the party and found that his views didn't match where the Democratic Party was heading. And I think that as you find more black intellectuals and as you find more African-Americans continuing to still live in, in, in dilapidated conditions and and, and, and living in poverty, to, to whether it be Obama that's president or Bush or Trump or Clinton, I think you're going to have more and more people disillusioned with what the political party, the Democratic Party specifically, can do for them. And I think, like, you look at Killer Mike's example, like, Killer Mike is a classic example of why an issue like gun control is almost always spoken about from a white perspective. It, it, we, like, we talk exactly. about gun control, and a lot of uh, liberals who are, who are ardent gun control advocates are surprised when their also liberal friends that happen to be black aren't so passionate about gun control being a measure to uphold as a solution to a particular problem in the country. Not to say, you know, obviously the issue is more nuanced to say gun control itself is bad is, is not what, what I'm saying here or that blacks don't want a version of gun control. But it's definitely talking talked about from a white perspective. And Killer Mike is a person who is advocating, as Dave said, for communities. Well, some of these communities do need to protect themselves, not just from other members of the community, but as we see from the police. So I can't fault Killer Mike's statements. What I fault is his ignorance in allowing himself, being a media, a person that's active in the media, I fault him allowing himself to be manipulated by a group like the NRA being being allowing himself to be edited and and allow himself to to appear on a programming where he had no clue and he admitted this himself how they were going to portray what his messages were uh, so that was just silly on his part but no I, I when it comes down to your question I think you're going to find in the next 10 15 20 years less and less black folk uh, enamored with the Democratic Party and you're going to find a political activism activism coming in different ways. And that might not equate to political power immediately, but it definitely is going to damage Democrats in states where they need the black vote uh, in order to succeed. Let's see what happens when Doug Jones over the next six years, if he is actively working with African-Americans in Alabama, because if he's not, there's no, it's already an uphill battle for him to get reelected in the first place. Right. Much more so an uphill battle if he's not actively working with African-Americans in Alabama in order to 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 get reelected. So yeah, I, I think the Democratic Party needs to needs to watch themselves. And the answer is not Kamala Harris. The answer is not no, no. Uh, um, God, um, God. Cory Booker. These aren't people that you can just put out in front and say, "Oh, look, you know, we've got we got blacks running for office. These guys are running for president. They're U.S. senators. Isn't that great? Like, we're doing great for blacks. That's not we got happened. blacks. We got blacks. <laughs> the greatest blacks. the greatest slogan of all time. We but, got uh, blacks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yo, piggybacking off of what you said, man, I think also one thing that we have to think about is I don't think it's a mistake that a, that guys like Kanye or Chance the Rapper who are from a, a city like Chicago would be disillusioned with the Democratic Party. If you just look at the history of guys like Mayor Daley or you look at somebody like Ron Emanuel, who's there now. I yeah. mean, if you're if you're in Philadelphia and you look at the history of a guy like Frank Rizzo, mm-hmm. Democratic, 
a Democratic um, police commissioner and former mayor who literally terror to terrorize black people. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And so, I, th I think the the it goes back to the, the hope is in the pros, man. Like and, and when I say that I'm referencing, obviously, I'm referencing uh, 1984. But what I mean to say when I say that is the only way the Democrats and the Democratic Party are going to be able to sustain this coalition of black voters and keep that as strong as they have been is in these local races and these local elections. I think that what we saw is when Obama left office, he, he kind of, he, his, whether you agree or not, they left a void of leadership at local levels. And, and we saw a, a, a rise in Republicans taking over state houses. We saw it in our, our own state in North, of North Carolina, not why he, when he left office, but obviously during that same time frame. Uh, how much the North Carolina GOP were able to take over uh, the General Assembly. Blacks, in order to be significant in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party is going to have to recruit more African-Americans to run for some of these local offices and eventually build themselves up to to running for some of these statewide uh, seats as well. But, but see, James, let me ask, let me post something to you real quick, Hank, because I don't think it's just a an issue of getting more African-Americans on the ballot. I mean, we could have a separate we could have a separate conversation about the role of gentrification and basically the end of the institution that was the black mayor for you know decades as being the, the at the forefront of black political power. Um, but the issue that I have, I think it's, it's much deeper than that. I think when you have the, the most religious, uh, the, the, the highest group of people in the country, percentage wise, that attend church that are Christians that follow these things. And then you have certain wings of the party that are actively against just about all everything that, that, that is, that is nominal, nominally Christian. I just don't, I don't know how long they're going to be able to sustain 90% of the African-American community. I do just think, don't. But do you, do you, do you actively believe that? Yeah, young, no, that doesn't mean they're going to be Republicans. Yeah, but do you actively believe that yeah, young African Americans are any way, shape, or form as "quote unquote" Christian as their parents or grandparents or well, great grandparents? Well, well, well I, nobody, I don't. nobody, nobody's as religious as the, the great grandparents. We're talking about like damn near a hundred percent. Yeah, right. And, and you, you're talking about a community in which the black church was the epicenter of the community in a way that it is it now. What I'm saying is. What, what I'm saying is just from an ideological standpoint, yes, there are some Ta-Nehisi Coates that are basically uh, these left-wing uh, ideologues who, where atheism is a central part. And if you read Ta-Nehisi Coates, atheism is a huge part of his writing, but I just don't think that that, that really – that trucks with the large majority of African-Americans, most of who are in the Southeast and most of whom at least let, let's, let's say if even half of African-Americans or let's say it's not 80%, just half are somehow nominally practicing Christians. Cause in a town like where I'm at, that's the case in a town like Dunn all over the Southeast, they just don't have a lot in common with, with the, with the people that are running the democratic party. Yeah, but they, but I, I would argue that young African-American Christians, unlike the point you made where the church was the epicenter of the community, that's not the case anymore. So no, these young African-American Christians aren't guided by what their preacher is saying on a Sunday. They aren't guided by, by what they're reading in their Bible 
every night as they're to, to relate to their political views or to to inform how they view the world. They they look at Christianity almost separately than than than, than their political values. And if they do, it's very rarely, in my opinion, from what I've seen, is very rarely directly connected to a hot button issue like abortion, a hot button issue uh, uh, like gay marriage or something of that nature. You will find, I believe more than anything, that if you find young African-Americans that go to church on a regular basis, I think you will find a lot of them support issues that their parents and grandparents definitely would have never supported at all that are in line with the current views of must, mo, mo, much of the Republican Party. And that's that's something like abortion. That is something like like gay marriage to that to that extent. Well, I think yeah, that's part of the reason why the community is so 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 fucked up. But um I, I honestly believe that this wave of 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 liberal of this huge amount of liberal millennials, I don't think number one, we're we're staying in polls. Generation Z is not as liberal as the millennial generation on a host of issues, uh, like debt, like abortion, et cetera. And number two, I just don't see my thing is it's not about whether or not people are as or as religious as great grandpa Claude, which is actually one of my great grandfather's names. Shout out to Claude Spain. But it's not about it's not about if they're that religious. The issue is is the Democratic Party doing anything to serve the needs and the issues of this next generation of African Americans? I don't see it as doing that. And you compound that with a with a group of people whose ideology whose ideology is diametrically opposed to at least a large percentage of this group of people. I just don't see how it's sustainable to keep this 90% out. Are they going to be movement Republicans? Hell no. The majority are not. And, and, and the Republican Party should, should really look itself in the mirror. That might be a separate dialogue, but they should take a long, hard look in the mirror about why it's not getting, you know, conservative Catholic Hispanics, why it's not getting AME Zion black folks. That's something it's, that we're going to have to work out. But as far as the Democratic Party being able to, to get 95, 90% 96 percent of the community and having nothing to show for it and having an ideology that's that's opposed to uh, to what a lot of these people actually think because don't don't forget gen xers are still around they're still going to be voting for the next 20 years they don't have a lot the black gen xers don't have a lot in common with with somebody like bernie sanders i mean so i just i just don't see how the 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 party in its current iteration is going to be able to maintain this lock on African-Americans. Well, let's talk about that Republican look in the mirror, though, and specifically the rise of bona fide actual Nazis, like not sugarcoat Nazis, but actual people running as Nazis. Like Paul Nealon. You know, well, he was he's one of them. Paul Nealon trying to uh, take Paul Ryan's place now that Ryan is retiring. Um, you've got that guy, Arthur Jones, who's running in Illinois's uh, third congressional um, there's been a list of a whole bunch of other candidates that have been running as avowed Nazis or National Socialists is what the uh, the official uh, party is. Uh, or quote unquote white identitarians. Right. You know, and then here in Durham, just uh, just this past week, you had people putting up stickers near the bus stop by my office that uh, said master race or disgrace. Uh, up the street, probably a couple blocks on Main Street, there's uh, posters going around of a guy pointing a gun uh, at a guy who's a Jew. It's a very uh, characterized Jew with a long nose wearing a skull cap, and he's got tentacles wrapping around the earth because, of course, uh, Jews run everything, supposedly, according to these people. 
Um, it says, white people, you have a right of revolution. Your ancestors threw off foreign oppression. Time for you as well, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this is the type of shit that, you know, I was taught existed in elementary, middle, and high school, but had mostly been shamed away to the fringes of society to the point where, you know, if you were an avowed racist, you at least didn't say it publicly because you wouldn't be welcome in polite society. And now these motherfuckers are on the ballots. Like, they're getting votes, and they're running pretty much uniformly as Republicans. So if we're at that point where the Democratic Party isn't going to be able to maintain this 90% lock, as you said, what's going to happen to the black community when you've only really got two major parties and the alternative is running actual bona fide Nazis? Well, to say that they're, they're running actual bona fide Nazis, I'd like to see the numbers of actual of the actual people that are on the ballot as Republicans that are around us, I'm sure it's a super small percentage. But I think one of the things that we've got to deal with, and this isn't just limited to uh, a few nutcases like Paul Nealon, this is also, we also need to talk about Dylan Roof or the guy that just shot up a Waffle House or the guy that just, um, or uh, what's the what's the guy's name? Elliot Rogers, who, if you look at his manifesto, wasn't just focused on uh, the women that he couldn't sleep with. It was also focused on uh, uh, niggas and other mud people, according to him. Uh, we've got we do have an issue in this country with uh, these angry young men, many of whom happen to be white. And if you go online forums like Reddit, you will see uh, the rise of white identitarians. Uh, guys like what's the guy's name that runs American Renaissance? Uh, Jared Taylor. You got guys like him. You've got guys like God. I'm having a, a number number of brain farts today for some reason. But but it's a rampant issue. And I guess one of the things that we're going to have to address is number one, finding a a, a sense of masculinity. And and redefine that in a way that is going to be positive, because what you're also seeing with these with this group of people is you're seeing the loss of manufacturing jobs. You're seeing a high opioid, a uh, high opioid epidemic. You're seeing the lack of educational attainment. And so a lot of these guys are looking for boogeymen and scapegoats to to address the fundamental reason why their life sucks. And they want people to blame. And that's what's fueled this thing. There's a reason why we didn't see this type of thing in the 1980s and 1990s. We had a booming economy. We had people that were working. We had all of these different types of things. We also, I think, had a, a much more, more responsible, much more responsible chief executive. But Donald Trump didn't create uh, these types of people. They were they were there all the time. The issue is what are we as a society going to do? to address this issue. And, and it's, as, honestly, the, the more and more I think about these types of active shooters, it honestly reminds me a lot of the issues that Europeans have with young Muslim men. A lot of times these guys, and this is not, obviously it's not all young Muslim men. We're talking about the ones that engage in terrorism. Um, you have an issue where you have high rates of unemployment, you have high rates of social disaffection, and then they get, they get, they get, pulled into a movement that says that they get to be these masculine warriors and fight for their group and, and, and they get to establish, they get to be a part of this great thing. And you see the parallels of these guys being pulled in. So I think uh, number one, uh, I, I'd like to salute people like Jonah Goldberg, like Charles Cook, 
who are like David French. David French is probably the, along with Ross Duthot, David French and him are probably the two most preeminent conservative writers right now, and they're addressing these things. Even somebody like Jordan Peterson, who I think has been wrongly mischaracterized as an all writer. You done invoke Jordan Peterson. I'm going to have so many fucking fanboys in my mentions right now. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that everything that he says is great, but I think that the fact that you're dealing with stoicism, that you're dealing with a person who's saying, look, he has this theory that says clean your room, which is basically control what you can control. That's what we need to be talking about. And, and, and we need to be telling these guys, hey, look, we need to be going back in these communities, having programs similar to what we need to be doing in, in the in a lot of these hoods and a lot of these barrios. We need to be doing the same thing in, in post-industrial towns in rural America. We need to be offering them solutions, getting people into the society, into the workforce, because what you see with these groups like the incels, these are guys who are, who are, I guess they're, they're celibate, but not by their choice. Uh, they're angry. These guys like George Soldini who go and shoot up people because they're losers. You've got, we've got to get these people into society and we've got to get them functioning. And I think, I think one of the big problems that we have is a lot of these guys are failure to launch. A lot of these guys are not productive citizens. They're not working. They're not doing all these things. And so you have a racist ideology that is able to prey on these guys and get them into uh, to do a whole lot of things that they probably, if they were working, if they had decent education, they probably wouldn't be doing. And that's not to say that there aren't some intellectual racists. Those have been here since we've had slavery in this country. But um, I think we would be able to tamp down on this if we were able to address this and, and, and formulate solutions and resources that would directly go in these communities and handle it. Now, James, I want you to give me your perspective on that, but I'm going to add something in. Now, there are periods of my life where I was involuntarily celibate. I never felt the urge to blame <laughs> right someone else for it. You know what I mean? Ouch. <laughs> That's a side effect of running a law firm, bro. Uh, but no, seriously. For all of the failures in my life, whether it's you know dropping out of college or whatever else, I, I never felt the need to blame somebody else. And, and part of that, I think, was because of my upbringing. I was told that if I ever you know ended up in a position, it was my own fucking fault. But you know, what's your thoughts on what Dave said, and and just take it from there? Because it sounds to me like an excuse. I mean, that's how it, it, it hits me, my ears. That's how it sounds like. Oh, that's, that's bullshit. <laughs> Let me address that. There is no ex- – as first of all, I, I take I take exception to that. As, as a black man whose who's father, when he went to NC State University, was one of only less than 100 people there, every white roommate he had moved out, every single one. I had a great – my great-grandfather, George Fox – uh, was a tenant farmer in the Jim Crow South. I don't need any lectures from any fucking body about what black people have addressed. I I, I don't give a fuck about any of these racists at any of the, If they do something criminal, they need to go to jail. If they kill somebody, they need to be on death row. Let's, let's clarify this shit before it gets taken out of context. The only thing I'm saying is that when you have a mass movement of people that do these types of things, the people that have studied it have said that you usually have young, disaffected men who are drawn to these types of things because they get to blame somebody else. That's all I'm saying. It's not no excuse. Go ahead. <laughs> well, classic. I think that one of the things is uh, to consider here is I want to be very careful about this idea of 
blaming somebody else. And what I mean is, I think you have people like they pointed out these disaffected young white men who who have been in, unsuccessful in a number of things in their life that need to find something to latch on to in order to 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 express themselves in a certain way, and they find a a violent community that's willing to tell them that they're important and nobody else is like, yes, that's a problem. But I also look at, you know, the idea that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We recognize that there are problems that have existed in this country that have led to certain groups of people uh, being mistreated and it creates attitudes that resonate over generations. I mean, you mentioned, your boy uh, Jordan Peterson a second ago, and this is a person who has denied the term white privilege because he doesn't believe it, it. It has merit, and the truth is there. Can we not just acknowledge that white privilege exists? Can we not acknowledge that white privilege and white supremacy is 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 predominant in the country? Recognize that it has affected whether or not we're educated young black men whether or not you're black men who are struggling to make ends meet it's affected all black people and people of color and and, and many different groups in this country while also saying that there's some things i need to do for myself in order to make myself a person a better person uh more productive citizen um as well so i, I think that as we find some of these nazis coming out of hiding and and finally getting to be out in the in the public and express themselves in such a way that they or want to garner all this attention and stuff. I think in a lot of ways, I think the idea that Trump is the reason why this happened is not the case, but I think Trump is, is definitely an arbiter of, of, of what's taking place here because of the rhetoric that he's used and some of the people that he's chosen to associate himself with, or at least at least the people that he chooses to acknowledge as those who, who he's wanted support from. And this has always existed. It's always been there. This is some of y'all have said that already. This has always been an underlying issue in the country. But you combine eight years of a a, a black president uh, mm -hmm. plus uh, an economy that was really kicking the working man down regularly, uh, over and over and over again, regardless who's in office, not whether it's Bush or Obama or whoever. And then you bring in somebody like Trump, who's willing to take that rhetoric and use that ideology in ways in order to one you know go on a birther tirade and then two become a candidate for president and eventually president then of course these people are coming out of the woodwork i, I think i think it's too easy for me to say we should stop just giving them attention because that's not going to happen and these people deserve to be called out for who they are and as dave said they deserve to be uh put in jail if they commit a crime i don't know about death penalty or death row so much. I'm a Catholic. I'm a good Catholic. So uh I'm a fire and brimstone fundamentalist. That's know? fun. That's yeah. <laughs> that's great. Emphasis on the fire. Oh uh, yeah. But, but uh but but I think there's something to be said about recognizing that there's a, a condition in this country that has allowed this to take place and that it's not something that we're easily going to be able to quote unquote solve. Um and, and I will also make this acknowledgement. I think this is, continues to be a minority group in the country. I, I think there's a lot of people who who believe in these same values and, and behind closed doors when they're close in their circles of, of other like-minded white folk, they probably have these conversations. Heck, we probably know some people in college that have had these conversations <laughs> behind closed doors. I, I can think of a handful of names. <laughs> right, right. But, but those are... <laughs> 
but they they are they are not folks that are going to uh, step outside of their house with tiki torches and 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 run over a young woman with a car. These are folks that are are, are still going to operate within society and move how society moves forward. So I still think this is a unfortunate minority that exists. And I think the advent of just the idea that we can that the advent of technology, the idea that we yes. can always access these folks and they have access to each other and that we always there's always video. There's always a uh, recording that takes place whenever these events are happening. Um, I, I think that's just exacerbated our perception of what's really happening in these issues. Uh, and I think it, it I think uh, this too shall pass. But J- James, I think there was a lot there that I, I, I completely 100 percent agree with. Part of it, I think you, you talk about this right at the end, is the social media is something that exists now at a time when there's a lot of cultural upheaval i mean a group like the proud boys which is a far-right looney tune organization who has been associated with things like the um charlottesville incident uh that that could have they could have never really gotten they could have never really gained ground in the 1990s and that atmosphere and that and that was the 1990s who had that they had the watts riots that had the oj trial they had uh, uh, the rodney king beating that could have never that that would have never happened then. And I think part of it and also one of the things that we need to talk about is the demographic change. I think it's not a surprise that when you have a stagnant economy and you have uh, the, the, the white, the majority population getting smaller, that there wouldn't be some more radical, insane elements that would come out as as a response to that change. And so I think that one of the but I've always believed that one of the best ways to fight bad ideas is to engage them with better ideas. And if you look at white nationalism, uh, white supremacy, and it's funny, I, I never I didn't know Jordan Peterson said that white supremacy didn't exist. But I know somebody who did say that white supremacy exists. Richard Spencer. <laughs> he said that repeatedly. Yeah, white supremacy wants to exist. And my goal is to expand it. But if you look at Richard Spencer in his debate with somebody like Roland Martin, who was not an intellectual heavyweight, Roland Martin wiped the floor with him, completely dismantled his argument. Dang, man, we got you rolling like that, man. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I, I, forgot, I forgot he's one of your fraternity brothers, man. Come on, man. Come but, uh, on. <laughs> let's, let's be real, man. Roland. <laughs> Roland Martin is not going to be the person that the black community sent out <laughs> on our behalf. Uh, no, no disrespect, Roland. Um, if, my, if my if my line brother T Brown on Twitter, <laughs> uh, uh, Sankofa Brown can get into an argument with Roland Martin when he was just in his infancy of learning uh, about culture and really developing his ideas and and beat Roland down Roland Martin down in a Twitter argument, then yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree. <laughs> With that assessment. Watching that guy's Twitter feed is a trip, bro. I hit him. I hit him up every now and then. I love him to death. Referring to to Brown, not to Roland. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. T, yeah. T, T Brown. Shout out T Brown. Oh six, man. Oh six. Hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shout out to all the light skinned black folks. T Brown is definitely the uh, captain of that squad right now. Um, Oh, shit. On that note, let's move on to the next topic. James, we're going to switch up to something that's more in your field house. So we've got teachers in several states now at this point uh, going on strike, demanding better pay. 
We've already had one in West Virginia where they went on strike for a pretty extensive period of time and got substantial pay raises from the General Assembly there. Arizona's is nearing a wrap-up now. I think they're getting a promised 5% raise immediately or something along those lines. And then the Durham County, North Carolina school board just voted yesterday that they're going to take off, they're going to close schools on May 16th because of so many teachers planning to go on strike as well. Now, from my standpoint, as a, a guy who's a byproduct of education, I love teachers. I've been on record for that for a while. I try to support them when I can. But as a guy that's also leery of unions, I really hate the idea of public employees going on strike. Like, that's always rubbed me the wrong way. And that's basically what this is going on. So what is your take on uh, the upheavals in education across the country? I think pay, pay is the easy easy focus, but I think the entire profession in and of itself has been beaten down over the years regarding a number of issues that allow pay to be the rallying call. Because I think if you advertise to the general populace that teachers want to be paid more, you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody who disagrees with that. Now, there's going to be people that disagree with the methods uh, to, to, to make that happen. Somebody, some people might support performance-based pay, uh, other people might support uh, raising taxes, et cetera. But you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody that disagrees with teachers making more money. But I mean, you look in in Oklahoma, the complaint was about textbooks primarily. You look at you look at these states, and what you see is people just being frustrated with the system not allowing educators to be treated as professionals, and the the this illusionment of, of 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 teachers of educators the 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 constant depression and frustration as we see how much turnover happens uh in 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 k through 12 schooling we recognize that this is not a profession that people want to be in and stay in now there are different programs across the country that do a great job of inspiring people to become educators like teach for america does that uh, the North Carolina Teaching Fellows Scholarship Program did a great job of that. And the new iteration of it uh, is another story for another day. But the former uh, 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 version of that program did a good job of that. When people get in the profession and they recognize that what we are really asking somebody to do on a day to day basis is not stand in front of kids and teach. But we're asking them to teach and mentor and counsel and right. and, 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 and be a, a sounding board. Uh, we ask them to um, design uh, um, uh, lessons and plans. Uh, we ask them to to prepare students for standardized testing. Uh, and the funny part is, that I think the testing part is a huge part of it. When No Child Left Behind ended and we brought in uh, ESSA, ESSA kept an annual testing mandate three through eight. So still testing math, still testing reading in grades three through eight. So you have teachers in one of the most crucial periods of a child's life, especially God bless all middle school teachers. I say that a million times over. I was blessed to have been a high school teacher. I don't know how you do middle school for all the hormones, plus the uh, the testing mandate that comes on top of that. Plus you're getting paid the same thing I am. I don't know how you do it. But anyways, three through eight, you have this mandate where you're having math and reading become this primary focus and you're burdening teachers with this idea that they're taking these high stakes tests and if their kids don't do well, if you have whatever growth measure you try to use in order to figure out how somebody does well, normally the growth measures 
ask kids to reach proficiency at some point when we know the schools that are the most hardest to staff and the schools that are are struggling the most are the ones that are not going to reach proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have threats of school takeover. You have um, areas like in Massachusetts where you have Lawrence, where an entire school district was t- was taken over and had to be restructured in order to uh, to to raise standards for their their kid. And Massachusetts is the one state is the number one state as far as uh, 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 NAEP scores go and and and, uh, and and test scores go in general. So I think a lot of that is burdening teachers. And I agree with you to a certain extent, Greg, about public employees protesting and what that does for the public services that they provide. I, I get that. But look at the states that they're protesting in. These are states that are right to work states or states that um, their unions likely have no collective bargaining. Uh, so what else are these teachers going to do? However, how else are they going to make their voice heard? They can't do it through elections because politicians have continually skirted this issue. Our president and our national politics in general, not just the president, but the Democrats and the Republicans have completely skirted K through 12 as an issue and want to focus now on, on college access and, 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 and loan forgiveness and these other, which are fantastic, yeah. but we've given up on K through 12 because people figured out they have no idea how to, how to address it. And so um, it's going, you're going to continue to see more of this uh, over and over and over again, because we see that it worked in West Virginia. Arizona is going to be an interesting case to see um, um, how, um, how that comes out, even with the agreements that have been made. So. Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's high time that 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 teachers be treated and and compensated like professionals. I I will give one little caveat real quick. Yes, I believe teachers need to be compensated like professionals, but I'm also not opposed to putting more rigorous standards on what teachers should be doing and, and how they're performing in the classroom. If if we find an effective way to evaluate teachers, which we do not have as of yet, so I think that's a lot of work to be done. But nobody wants to do that work because the sexy work is in loan forgiveness and in, in, in college access. Yep. I'm gonna tell you the fact that you said that statement about you'd be okay with higher standards. Essentially, I heard people shrieking through the through my hair headphones. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 Greg. The, the point is, I, I, I'm 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 for higher standards for educators. We just haven't created an evaluation tool that does that effectively. Right. So first and foremost. There has to be an evaluation. Like they use value added scores for like math and, and English teachers. They use that. That's value add is controversial. It 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 has its merits. But again, value add only covers 20% of the teachers in a school building at a time. 80% of the teachers have no value added scores because they're science teachers or uh social studies teachers or they teach art or teach PE. So we can't use value add. Classroom observations are a terrible measure of determining who's uh, a proficient teacher or not, because the 80 to 90 percent of those principles give you a proficient score regardless. Uh, so in that case, I think in a lot of ways, we have to first find a tool before we add standards, before we make teachers have more stringent standards um, that they need to follow in order to uh, can make, uh, remain in the profession, before we uh, decide to put stronger uh, uh, um, requirements on what teachers should do and how they should behave in the classroom. We have to create an evaluation tool, or states need to create an evaluation tool that is actually doing that work. And all I'm saying is that tool doesn't exist, um, so it can't be done right now. But it could be done eventually. But really, how hard could that be? I mean, we've had teachers teaching for literal centuries. 
Yeah, but what's your what's your inference though, Greg? Like, it, there, there's the, the 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 idea of the idea of that teachers have been teaching for centuries. The profession in and of itself changes every day. Yeah, the, the profession in itself changes every year that you're in the classroom. I've taught I taught world history for four straight years, and I can tell you right now that what I had to do as a world history teacher, while the curriculum might have remained stagnant, which it didn't, because every couple of years they'd add something or subtract something or or make us do it in a different way. I had demands by my department. I had demands by my uh, professional learning team to teach it in a different way. Or I had students that came in that classroom. I had students with special needs that came in that couldn't do some of the activities that were tried and true of the past that I had to take care of in that case. And now we have issues where because we've acknowledged that so many students come in as English language learners and we recognize that we have a lot of undocumented students in our schools, that adds another layer of issues that changes the way we need to approach conversations in the classroom. So it, even though people have been teaching for a long time, what makes a good teacher yesterday might not make what a good teacher is today. And some of the things that we would need to be evaluated on to determine whether or not we're a good teacher are so 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 subjective that it's going to be almost impossible to create a tool that accurately uh reflects all of those factors in some way so but i'm I'm gonna pull a lawyer on you and push back because what you said was you're fine with higher standards if we develop a metric for measuring what is a good teacher Mm -hmm. you then said that the reason we don't have that metric is because the profession changes every day. Right. The profession ain't going to stop changing. So how are we ever going to find a metric to adapt to get you the higher standards? Exactly. We're not. So you, so we're not going to have higher standards then? No, but my entire point, my that was my entire point of this. That was my entire point of this. We have to, I'm, I, am, I am of the impression that when we go into a classroom and you observe a teacher, there are there's a there's an evaluation tool that you use in order to observe that teacher. Great. Fantastic. Cool. That evaluation measure does not cover a number of things. Now, the evaluation measures that could be created, there is no political wherewithal. There is no uh, 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 policy window that's opened up to allow people to create that tool. So we will not we will not be in a position where we can accurately ever really judge what's a good teacher or a bad teacher. So my entire point was, we do need to compensate teachers more. We need to use uh, the tools that we have in order to get to 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 find some sort of uh, roundabout way to make a judgment about teachers. But we're never going to have an accurate way to really keep teachers to a higher standard. We're never going to have a tool that's going to accurately measure that thing to the fullest. So at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, uh, I, I I I think that that teacher pay has to be taken care of and each state is going to have to do the best they can when it comes to holding teachers to higher standards but i i just don't i just don't see it happening dave what's your two cents yeah because all i've got is two cents on this issue this is definitely james's wheelhouse but my biggest concern when it comes to education is number one the achievement gap and number two uh getting more rigor in the classroom and I don't think that we're going to be able to accomplish these two things without compensating uh, and treating teachers as if they are a professional class of people. And so whether that requires uh, more professional development, more standards, I, I, I'm for looking at all of that 
You know, I'm a person who's big on educational choice. I love Eva, Eva Moskowitz. I love Jeffrey Canada. But I, I also think the no matter what model we have, the majority of people are going to be educated in publics in regular public schools. So we have to find a way to make K through 12 education better, because if you look at the people that are graduating or leaving school without a diploma, they, a lot of them are just not prepared to enter the job market and it, with, with any skills. And so part of that is we're not attracting a lot of our best and brightest to education because they don't feel as though they'll be treated as professionals, compensated as professionals. So I, and I also think that as Republicans uh, and conservatives, uh, part of that mission is the things that are in the purview of the government, which are public schools, need to be ran well. So I'm not exactly sure what the silver bullet is, but part of that means that we, we need to make these institutions work and work well and, and prepare kids for a 21st century job economy. So if that means, I think that means compensating teachers appropriately, but I also think that means more professional development. So I agree with the, the, the main thrust of what James said. I will say that the curriculum issue is, is a big deal in my perspective, because our curriculum isn't designed to uh, teach kids, teach kids professional skills. It's not designed to do that. We don't have courses that are uh, are geared towards that. We do different schools across the country decide to do. They can they can do that if they'd like. But that's not something that we mandate out of our kids. And my thing with choice, uh, just to just to briefly touch on that for a second, I think choice is 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 reasonable. I also think that it's very difficult to provide choice for students in rural communities. Um, and there are a number of black and brown children who live in a lot of these rural communities that there is no choice. There's not There's not going to be a charter school built in that area uh, to give those children other options. And so I agree with the point that we need to make our traditional public schools work because choice is not a, uh, a blanket answer to how we solve um, the problem of educational attainment for our young students. It's definitely not a panacea. And so we definitely need to make those regular schools work better. I think even even if we don't even talk about professional skills, just basic reading comprehension, if, especially if you look at uh, Native American, African American and Hispanic boys. I mean, the, the 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 being able to read at grade level and do math at grade level, these guys are woefully unprepared. And if you look at the number of these guys that are falling out of the educational system without getting a diploma, and then you also look at the, 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 the number of these guys that are getting incarcerated, there's a huge correlation. And I, I think to make our society function better, not, not just to, it's not just to compete with other con countries to get the, the 21st century jobs or tomorrow to have a whole uh, new group of engineers. It's also about getting these guys prepared and ready to be functional adults and be able to contribute and live their best lives. And education is the best way to do that, um, aside from having a nuclear family, which is stable and intact. So I, I think it's a the huge, the, the, we definitely need to focus on educational reform because we're losing so many people. And the majority of people uh, are not going to be able to go to Sidwell Friends or Andover or Phillips Exeter or Ravenscroft or Cary Academy. So we need to do something for the masses of people that are in our regular schools. Those that have access to choice, God bless them. Let them go and get it. Because I, I definitely think if there's an opportunity to help poor students or help students that aren't being served, 
let's do it. Let's have an all hands on deck strategy. But we definitely need to figure out a way to help the masses of people that are stuck in these regular schools. All right. Let's uh, I know we're getting a little long on time, but let's visit some politics and what looks to be a potential blue wave happening in November. So the most recent special election that uh, we've had was in I think it was Arizona fairly recently. The Republicans won. It was a uh, Debbie Lesko was the Republican nominee. I think she's in Congress already, if I remember correctly. Or she's in the state legislature, something like that. Yeah, she's in the state legislature. Uh, running against uh, Dr. Harold Tippernini. And it's a district that Trump won by like 26 points. And Lesko only won it by five. Now you look at that. You look at Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania. You look at the tight margin down in Georgia. Karen Handel. Um, yeah. You know, all of these elections going on. If Democrats aren't flipping them outright, like with Doug Jones down in uh, against the child molester, the the margins are a lot closer than they have been in the past. So what are you expecting in the few months ahead? I mean, we're only at May from now until November is an eternity in political time. But you've got a lot of races that have previously been uncontested now have competition. Here in North Carolina at the General Assembly, there's a Democrat running for all 170 legislative seats. That's the first time that's ever happened since records have been being kept. Uh, Dave, we'll start with you. What are you expecting to see by the time November rolls around? Well, and I think one of, one of the we've also forgotten is uh, the Mississippi governor race. Um, he the, the Democratic nominee there, no, he's not leading, but he's – outperforming his uh, his expected numbers to a, to a great extent. I think the issue is this. If we look at, and the journal, I can't remember for the life of me, the journalist's name. She actually looked at the Tea Party, and now she, she's been looking at the resistance. And what we see from these group of people in the resistance is they are not, you know, woke millennials. The majority of them are, you know, older Gen X, younger uh young baby boomer type folks who are, you know, suburbanites. These are the type of people that will be in Wake County, in the Philly suburbs, in the Atlanta suburbs. These are the folks that are walking away. A lot of them happen to be female. So I I, I fully expect, especially with uh, Paul Ryan's resignation, I fully expect the Democrats to, to take the House uh, and if they don't, they come damn close. But I think the Senate is still in good hands. It'll stay in Republican hands. James, how about you? I, it's it's interesting because I think we we talk about this a lot, and I think that there's there's something to be said about not just Democrats winning these seats, but also Democrats coming closer in areas uh, that Trump was very successful in. I do think that this entire idea of a blue wave is I, in the past. I would have said this is definitely the case. This is what was going. Forward, but it, I think it's a bit premature. We haven't stepped into summer yet. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when the October surprise will come up. Yeah. Believe me, if, if if Trump has an idea for October surprise, he's definitely going to do it. Uh, come hell or high water, uh, he, <laughs> we're going to bomb Iran. <laughs> right? Something something to that effect, right? He's going to do. Nah, something. I don't think that'll happen. Um. All right. We'll see. Um. But but I I think that I think that right now the climate. Uh, has allowed for Democrats to be able to be successful in some of these areas. And what the Democratic Party, when whenever they're successful, they're successful when they nominate candidates that are palatable to the constituents they're going to represent. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what's 
potentially dangerous about the Democratic Party now is you have people who are such liberal firebrands right now that are that are in a position where they are willing to 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 cut the throat of Democrats that don't support certain hot button issues um, that they deem as uh, as uh, a, a, they, they deem as in, infallible to 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 a candidate for a Democrat. Like it's, it, these are issues that are litmus tests for these Democratic candidates. And you have a lot of those people that are that have money. You have a lot of those people that are actively in the party that see uh, Democratic candidates uh, like the candidate in Illinois. I cannot remember the the, the, the man's name um, for the life of me, but he was uh, he was challenged in his Democratic primary uh, by a much more liberal candidate. And the Democratic Party actually uh, withdrew support from him. Uh, and it led to uh, actually him actually winning uh, the election. So that's, a, you know, that's an awkward a conversation the next morning uh, uh but but this is this is only going to be as effective as the candidates that democrats have in front of them you look at somebody like claire mccaskill who is like escaped she's like she's like rasputin man like she <laughs> has been close to death so many times in missouri and has always ended up running against candidates who are flawed or candidates who who uh, have a potential uh, uh uh issue that that might hold them back from being palatable to uh, Missouri voters. You look at somebody like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, who is 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 so beloved in the state because of his time as governor, uh, because of his his very very centrist attitude, that he's likely going to be able to win that uh, election. So you have these candidates who are uh, uh, look at look at Tennessee. Phil Bresden it was the governor of Tennessee. Bob Corker is one of his best friends. Bob Corker is the one retiring from the Senate. Bob Corker refuses to campaign negatively against Phil Bresden because they're so tight that you have somebody like Marsha Blackburn, who is a very conservative Republican uh, in that state, who's running against a pretty popular Democratic candidate who might win a Senate seat in Tennessee. Folks, Tennessee, of all places, might vote for a Democratic candidate with probably the first since, like, what, Al Gore uh, was 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 there? So, I think so. Um, so I, I think you you well, have. A- I, I'm gonna pause and just say I agree to the point. It's you know it's Tennessee, it's Tennessee. But once you got Democrats representing Alabama, everything else That's is just kind of like <laughs> you know it's possible. That's true. Yeah. Anything as Kevin Garnett said, anything is possible. Like it, yeah, you're right. You're like if you have a Democrat in uh, Alabama. But, but James, think, let me yeah. ask you a question. Do you think that this current iteration of the Democratic Party is going to be friendly to blue dogs? Because that's 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 been the, the biggest problem that they had was the purge in right. o, of in o ten in, in two thousand and ten of the of the blue dogs that that's what yeah. really hurt them guys like Heath Schuler yeah. and Bob Etheridge not having a home in the party yeah. anymore yeah um, I mean I'm fine with some of those blue dogs growing like Mike McIntyre I'm glad you're gone brother oh, God uh, glad, glad, <laughs> glad we we in we in the uh, the great city of Wilmington North Carolina decided that uh, we weren't uh, fans of you anymore um but i do think that the Demo- now, look i i gotta stop the slander against him because i have a united states flag that was given to me as a birthday gift it flew over the Capitol on my birthday okay and his, his office made that happen so uh-huh. I, I, don't, I don't i don't know anything else about him but i know that the flag in my apartment came courtesy of his constituent relations <laughs> greg is in the pocket <laughs> of a, uh, U.S. Congressman. Uh, no, I, I I think that's a great question, Dave. But I the the well, how I would push back against that is I think the Democratic Party establishment 
is 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 smarter about this than some of the the more activist elements of the party. They know who they need in these seats in order to win. Mm-hmm. Um, they know what kind of candidates are needed to win. Once Nancy's gone, um, I think uh, I think I'm I think, a party. <laughs> I think Pelosi is on her last legs, and I hope that the Democrats. I don't know, man. Look, if the Democrats take the House. You know, she's the one that's going to be raising the money to make that happen. I think she's going to be speaker again. I I, I think, but I, I also will say I, that, that might ab- absolutely be fair. I just would hope that some of the Democrats that get into uh, to office from some of more some of these more conservative seats and uh, districts and states, I, I would hope that they would uh, have the have the gumption uh, <laughs> to uh, to to make sure that Nancy uh, just you know. Most to the side for a little bit. She can still be in, in, in the house. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's time to get somebody else in there. Uh, but you know, Ch- uh, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Schumer is not a a a flag waving liberal Democrat in 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 most sense. He is a practical he, he practical. He's not a blue dog, but he's a practical um, Tip O'Neill. Less than Tip O'Neill, even. He's less liberal than Tip O'Neill, but he's one of these people that understands how to work across the aisle with folks. And I think that's the type of person you're going to see um, in a lot of these leadership positions from this point forward. Because what people were really mad about in the Trump election, I think, when it comes down to it, was was less Trump himself and the fact that they lost. The fact that they could not understand how that person could be the nominee for the Republican Party. And they lose a presidential election that was handed to them on a civil title. Right. Well, there's 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 members of the party that do, and I think there's members of the party that are going to push the Democratic Party in the direction to to get some of these more uh, 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 centrist candidates on the ballot in a lot of these states, and maybe nationally we'll see what happens um, in 2020. But uh, but I, I think that I think that there's going to be a divide in the Democratic Party for a long time. Uh, amongst the Bernie Sanders wing of the party uh, and the more um, centrist uh, uh, members of the party. But I think the centrist member of the party, they're the ones with the money, the influence, the power to be able to put candidates in positions to be successful in areas that are very competitive or areas that have not been competitive in the past, that there's a window opening to uh, to uh, to win a seat from a republic. It, it would be it would be better for the country if the Democratic Party was the party of Dick Gephardt, just like it would be better for the country if the Republican Party was the party of Eisenhower. Uh, I don't see either of these things happening. Uh, in Man, the that's the first time I heard Gephardt and Eisenhower as comparable <laughs> comparable people. That's <laughs> I, I was thinking it, but you said it. Hey, man. <laughs> Yeah, got to throw something out to the history nerds. All right, two last questions before we wrap up. First, was Black Panther everything you expected it to be? Everything and more. You know, I, I had my dashiki on for a full <laughs> week. You know, it was dope. But I told y'all this is what was going to happen. I, I am the Negro Domus of this, man. I told y'all this was going to break records. It did that. And I can't wait to see how uh, my man T'Challa shakes out in the Infinity War. No spoilers. Well, that was going to be my next question. Have you seen it yet? So I guess the answer to that is no. No, not yet. I've seen, I've seen, obviously I saw Black Panther and wonderful, fantastic movie. Uh, I'm just proud to see black folks on screen and behind the scenes uh, get so much recognition for making a, a an epic film. Uh, the the qualms I have with the film are a little too nuanced for this po- uh, this uh, this podcast. But uh, let's uh, hear it. I'm well, curious. I, I I was not a I was not a fan of the 
the final battle scene between he and Killmonger. I thought it should have been more personal, even though they they did fight physically a couple of times in the in the film. Yeah, I, I thought the fight should have been more personal than uh, than both of them in a version of the Black Panther suit uh, on a train uh, on a train line. I, I, I thought that that's their relationship called for that. Uh, but that was probably my biggest qualm with the film. But other than that, it well, obviously a wonderful film. Infinity War, I can't stop thinking about that movie. Um, I think, and this is no spoilers, but uh, the betrayal of Thanos and and just uh, how Josh Brolin uh, uh, brings uh, character to that role. Uh, because in the comics, Thanos is, is more complicated than just some world conqueror. He's very insecure. Uh, and I think Josh Brolin brings some of that insecurity to to that role and a different iteration for what he his mission is. And, you know, he's not fighting for the love of death, which is right. a bizarre concept that, to bring to a film. So I'm glad they stayed away from that. But yeah, Infinity War was 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 wonderful. I'll call it, and when I say this, I mean this in the way that people in film use it. I call it a perfect movie. And what that means is it's not the best movie of all time. It's not gonna win any awards or for in the Academy or anything like that. But a perfect movie to me is a film that set out to have a mission and a goal to do certain things to establish certain things that were important to the past and the future of that franchise and go out and do it. And that film did it. So um, when y'all check it out, we definitely have to have a conversation. I'm just well, impressed man. that one movie can tie basically what a dozen or so different movies together. Yeah. Right. It's kind of unprecedented. My biggest problem with black Panther was taking away the bastard that T'Challa was. I, I like, I like, yeah. the I like the calculating, highly intelligent T'Challa more than the, uh, you know, homecoming king at Howard. <laughs> That's my issue. Yeah. I mean. now, now I got listeners in D.C. They're going to be adding shambles after this podcast. <laughs> I, I will say this. As someone who grew up during, you know, the heyday of Marvel prior to their bankruptcy, the Infinity Gauntlet series and everything else. I like both movies. I thought they were superlative. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, fellas, thank you so much for joining me again. I think it's the third appearance y'all have had on Fisk Mall. I appreciate you joining us. How can listeners find you on social media? James, where are you at? I am at uh, Mr. Hankins Opus. Greg uh, put a lawyer trick on me earlier and he got me caught up So I, in my words. So, uh, so as you listen to that part, just realize that was cruel. That was just really cruel to Greg to do that. But, uh, <laughs> but no, Mr. Hankins, check it out. Mr. Hankins Opus. Um, and also, uh, my podcast, Mr. Hankins Opus podcast is available on iTunes. I interview students at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Uh, it's called Mr. Hankins Opus, uh, conversation with education's future. We kind of talk about their journey to, um, to Harvard, as well as their goals in the future, their vision of education in this country or internationally. And, uh, actually we just shoot the breeze some and kind of have some, uh, some uh some conversation about just what's on their mind what as peter griffin would say what grinds their gears um that day uh so check out mr hankins opus podcast on itunes and i'm at mr hankins opus jimmy appleseed is the name uh so check me out all right dave how about you yeah i'm at d fox the truth at twitter um wakanda forever <laughs> now you said you had a podcast coming out too soon didn't you I'm, I'm still working on that it's a labor of love it was supposed to it's supposed to be me james uh my buddy aaron brown who is a phd candidate at ohio university and uh our, our friend will cubison who has absconded to israel <laughs> um and we're still working on that man it's just that between school and everything that i got going on all the republican 
stuff I, I got going on trying to uh, make the party great again. Uh, it's got a lot going on. So we'll launch. I think I, I got to talk with Hank and the boys, but hopefully we will uh, we'll get it together. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, fellas, thank you all so much for joining us. Enjoy your respective schoolwork in your different states. I'm going to go back to running my law firm. <laughs> all right. T-Greg, thanks. Peace. Thanks for having us again, big baby. Peace. Deuces. So, folks, that was my conversation with Dave and James. I hope you all enjoyed it. Gave us a chance to talk some politics with uh, more than just me, because I know you love the sound of my mellifluous voice. But even I annoy myself sometimes when it comes to uh, the political talk. I hope you all enjoyed it. Follow both of them on Twitter. James is at Mr. Hankins Opus, M-R-H-A-N-K-I-N-S-O-P-U-S. And Dave is at DFOX the Truth, D F O X X T H E T R U T H. That's going to conclude this special subscriber only edition of the podcast. Remember, you're not going to hear anything about this podcast from me. So if you want more people to listen to it, what I need you to do is to recommend it to them. Put it on Twitter, put it on Facebook, send them in a direct message. If you know people that have uh, iPhones, you can send them the URL and it will automatically fetch the stream so they can click play right within their messages. And in addition to that, do me a favor, leave us a five-star rating on the Apple Podcasts app or Stitcher or leave us a written review, either one or both, that would be fantastic. So on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy in particular, give him props because slicing up these, you know, hour and a half back and forth multi-person interviews uh, is a royal pain because like I've seen the the final work product when he does my stuff where you can see the cuts and things have been smushed and he's cut out, you know, when I cough or something like that. But what we do with these is we actually record in like four different tracks. So I can see each cut where it switches from me to Dave to James back to me again. And I can only imagine how much time that took. So give Mike a round of applause on Twitter as well. Uh, let him know that y'all appreciate him as much as I do. And on behalf of both of us, I hope all of you have a fantastic weekend coming up. And I'll be right back here on Monday. Take care.